Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I think the things that you, that we as designers can be doing immediately without having to invest in new software or learn new software, things that we can do immediately is content warn your shit like put content warnings on things like that is an accessibility thing because if someone has triggers around something and they read your game not knowing about them that's harmful and that game like it's not accessible to them like accessibility isn't just about like disability um so content warn your shit because you can do that it costs you nothing It's just polite. It's just the right thing to do. So do it. It will take you five minutes. Welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast, the show that calls on the champions and new contenders of the tabletop RPG arena. My name is Jeremy Gage, and I am learning about tabletop game design and publishing. If you are a budding game designer or a veteran looking for fresh musings, stay tuned as we learn about the inspirations, processes, and philosophies of professionals in the industry. everyone thank you for coming to the draw your dice podcast my name is jeremy as you heard in the intro but today is never about me as i say every single time from this point forward it's a catchphrase thing i'm developing anyways today's guest i'm very excited to have we have been trying to plan this for months on and off for sure uh so i'm finally glad that they can be on the show i have with me a musician professional game designer has been on panels, Table Talk Babble, has been on design podcasts and band podcasts. Oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be good. They make music? Shit. Let's welcome Chris Bissett, everyone. Hey. Hey. Wave to the fans. Hi. <laughs> How are you? Uh, it's a pleasure to have you, Chris. Thank you for having me. It's, we have been planning this for quite some time. Yeah. And by plan, I mean forgetting every once in a while we get busy. <laughs> every month it's been like, oh, shit, we were meant to record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, I'm glad you could be here. As always, uh, why don't you give a very brief intro for people who may not be aware of who you are, new to the show, um, and also your handles and tags, And because I can't guarantee everyone's going to listen to the 45 to 90 minutes this podcast takes up. So, bada bing, bada boom. Part of me is like, screw those people. We'll put the tags at the end. If they don't listen, (laughs) they don't get it. But hi, (laughs) I'm Chris Bissett. I am a tabletop game designer, musician, uh, all around person from Manchester in the UK. I am probably best known for my solo journaling game, The Wretched, Mm -hmm. and for trash-talking Hasbro all the time. And you can find me (laughs) doing that on Twitter.com as Pangalactic. And you can find my website, lootheroom.uk. That's maybe the smoothest intro for myself I've ever done on a podcast. That was fun. Praise. Praise one, blaze one. I don't know why I said that. I don't smoke. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so, uh, as always, as an additional icebreaker to the show, Chris, could you sort of walk us through your journey into game design? Maybe sort of the first role-playing game you played that really got you hooked on the discipline, the hobby, whatever you want to coin it as. And then maybe what was the first game you hacked, invented, supplemented that brought us to who you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So I started playing tabletop games in the 90s in 94 i used to watch my dad and his friends play D, and then i got bought a DD starter set in 94 and a whole life happened between the 90s and now and then um i seriously got into design last year i was doing like D 5e stuff on the dms guild for a few years and then i took a year off and when I came back to wanting to write games and shit, um, I, D&D wasn't fun anymore. It wasn't doing it for me anymore. And I the, uh, the record collection jam was going on. And Larry Asmuth, who is a great designer from, I think, Finland, told me about the um, record collection jam on the last day of it. And he was like, oh, don't worry. It happens every year. You can write a game for it next year. And I was like, buddy, I have ADHD. I'm going to write a game tonight. And I wrote a solo journaling game uh, based on Bon Iver's 22 A Million, which is one of my favorite albums. And I was like, oh, shit, this was fun in a way that writing D&D has never been fun. And then the next month it was Zine Quest. And so I did a game called Under the Floorboards for Zine Quest, which is like a little soft role-playing game about based on the borrowers, about being small people, stealing things from the house that you live in. And it's just kind of like I haven't stopped since March last year. It's just been just snowballed. I did under the floor walls. I did the wretched. I started my Patreon. I started putting out games every month. And now I'm sitting here talking to you. 27 years of gaming has led me to this the pinnacle of my career being on oh D- DYD. That's not, even, <laughs> that's not even sarcasm. I'm really, really excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this. It sounded, it sounded like I was insulting you, but I'm not. I'm really excited. No, it goes both ways. <laughs> I mean, uh, you've been certainly a personality in the brain trust for a really long time. You're very outspoken about a lot of things, especially the games that you design and, and the inspirations that uh, those things come from as well. So you've been a very nice constant voice in, in that sphere. Uh, and you Thank also you. have your own podcast, the the Liminal Podcast. Correct? Did I say that right? Is that right? It should be the Liminal Podcast. Nominal. It's a, nominal. The nominal Game Design Podcast. Damn I haven't it. done one of them for a minute. Um, yeah, that was that was like therapy for me at the start of this year. 
Mm. I was I listened to um, Willie Obst has a podcast where they name lists of things to music, and I listened to that and I was like, holy fuck, this is so good! I want to <laughs> do something like this. This is great. Um, and I I literally sat down with a synth pad and a microphone and like talked to myself for an hour and it was so fucking cathartic. And then I threw it up on the internet and everyone was like, oh, this is really cool. And I went, oh shit, now I need to do more of them. I think I did four of them and then I had to stop because I was too busy. But every every weekend, Saturday morning rolls around and I'm like, I could record a podcast. And then deadlines go, no, you can't. You've got writing to do. I'm going to start nominal up again because that was fun. It's like, it was like therapy, but I didn't have to pay for a therapist. Um, do you think that doing that podcast... Uh, no, you did stuff for The Wretched. So I think one of the really cool things about your sort of game design principles, at least for the games that I've been exposed to, being mm-hmm. The Wretched and Dice Souls and your podcast as well, um, that you incorporate a lot of music content alongside these products as well. And we're, we're going to get into Dice souls in a little bit here but um do you think that record jam and also you being a musician did that sort of add that principle to your game design ethos like you i feel like you from that point have always been adding music to something so you think that's something you continue want to do yeah i mean i definitely like like you said i'm a musician as well um like i've been lucky that we haven't been able to tour for the past year because i've been able to put a lot of emphasis into game design but I think in my head, games and music have always gone together. Like that starter mm-hmm. set, the D&D box set that I got in the 90s, um, the, it was the second edition AD&D first quest box. And that came with a CD and it had music on it and it had like NPC voices on it and stuff. And then like a lot of the board games that I played as a kid in the 90s were like those VHS board games, you know, like Atmosphere that had like a mm-hmm. video that you put in and it would play ambient music while you were playing the game. And so I think from a very, very young age, like music and games have gone together in my head. And then when I started getting back into it in the age of streaming, everyone's playing D&D on Twitch and they've got background music and like Sirenscape wins Ennies. And I was like, well, shit, if I'm going to write games, like music is a thing that I do as well. So why don't I just write music as well? And partly that was, excuse me, um, I'd done a little bit of my website. I used to do maps on my site like every month before I got into game, like writing games. I used to do D&D maps. And I'd done a couple where I did background music for them as well. Mm-hmm. And then when I wrote The Wretched, the, the impetus for that game, the design brief I gave myself was I want to write a game that, pl- that feels to play the way a John Carpenter soundtrack sounds. And then when I'd written the game, I was like, well, shit, now this needs a John Carpenter soundtrack to go with it. Uh, And people really responded to that. So I told myself then that every game I released at that point was going to have a soundtrack for it. And I did Go Alone, and I did the soundtrack for Go Alone. Excuse me. And then I started doing monthly games for Patreon and was like, shit, you can't do a soundtrack every month. So I just just do do it for, like, the special ones now. Um, like Dice Souls, I was like, yeah, I need to do a soundtrack for this game. But uh, yeah, I love music and music and games go together really well. And it's an excuse for me to combine two things that are really important to me. And like the two creative parts of my life get to come together into one, which is really fun. I think, 
I think I, I look up to you in that regards because what's really cool, I feel similarly about music and games. I come from a heavy video game background mm-hmm. and I can't tell you how much I'm sold by a soundtrack or a score because it does, I don't know, I love artwork, but I think there's just something about the atmosphere that music can create for you, whether it has lyrics or not, or the style yeah. or, the, you know, whatever. It just, it really transports you in a really cool way. I think, you know, off the rip, I think about games like Final Fantasy XIV, mm-hmm. uh, their musical scores, like, I can remember this moment. It's when Heaven's Ward came out, the second expansion, or the first, I guess the first expansion, but second game. Mm-hmm. You know, there's... Anyways, Heaven's <laughs> Ward came out, and uh, there's a fight against the Knights of the Round. So if you're like Final Fantasy buff, Knights of the Round is an old Final Fantasy Seven summon, and blah, blah, blah. I'm sure you know. If you're listening yeah. and you get it, you get it. If you don't get it, Go you won't get it. Yeah, go play those games, then you'll get it. <laughs> go but, play Ocarina uh, of Time, and then you can sit here like me going... It's me every day. I think some of the first like piano music I learned were the Warp songs. Anyways, aside from a point, there's this moment that I will never forget. I I like to tank in those sorts of games. I like to play tank roles. And there's a fight called... It's against the Knights of the Round, and there's a song called Heroes. And... um me as a paladin one of my opening moves is like the shield lob and then i go into like a blocking stance or whatever but it's just like there's a there's a crescendo that happens you listen to the fight build up the cinematic plays it opens you up to do movement and then this like big trumpet flare hits and i'm throwing my shield and i'm running at this thing and i dive in i was like oh this moment is just so well encapsulated it's just yeah. so that's all to point at uh, you know, there's just this atmosphere. And then I think about games like Hollow Knight that really create a sense of yeah. depth and exploration, how each zone has its own character. Like, music is a character. I think yeah. that's what it, what I'm trying to say. Like, music has a character. You can do stuff with it, with the absence of it as well, like... Um, yes, yep, which, yes. Which Ghibli film is it? Uh, it's either Norseka or Castle in the Sky. I can't remember now. Um, but the original Japanese version, not the Disney dub... Um, there's this moment where, God, it's so long since I've seen them. People, Ghibli stands are going to be like, he doesn't fucking know what he's talking about. There's a really <laughs> cool scene where one of the characters is like flying through space and all the music drops out and it's like completely silent and there's just like wind effects. And because there's been this amazing score throughout the entire film, the music drops out and you're like, this is really impactful. And on the English dub, Disney put music over that scene and like... <laughs> It's shit. Doesn't have the same it's feeling. It's not the same. And like, I remember seeing the Blair Witch Project for the first time, and there's no music at any point in that film, and the silence is just like oppressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love I love playing with sound. It's so much fun. Yeah, it, that speaks. That reminds me of um, I don't know if anyone hears as weep as me, but I watched all of Naruto. Um, I will not watch Baruto, but <laughs> in the in the big cl- spoilers for Naruto, if you haven't seen it, I can't help you. It's been like four or five years at this point. So I think I'm in the spoiler safe zone. But spoilers for Naruto, either way, uh, Shippuden. But at the end, uh, Naruto and Sasuke, longtime rivals, they have these amazing like flute scores and sweeping strings or whatever. But in their final confrontation, when they've spent everything that they've had and they've used every like 
Kamehameha and Spirit Bomb or whatever abilities they have. It's just down to a fist fight and no music plays for literally the longest seven minutes I've ever seen an anime not play music. And that all you're left with is just like the thuds of fist against flesh the whole time. Splashes of water. And it's really like, holy shit, this feels bad. What is happening here? (laughs) Yeah, Uh, it's so good. I love it. So uh, with that, with that whole thing, let's uh, let's talk about the quick start to Dice Souls. Yeah. Uh, So first off, Chris, my always opening question for these sorts of dissections Uh is that what what moment because this is we'll get into it, but delineation of a video game. What moment said I need to create a tabletop role playing game about this? So, right, I have been trying to get into Dark Souls for, what year did Dark Souls come out? Since it came out, 2008, I don't know. (laughs) Um, I looked at it, I remember seeing the trailers for it and being like, holy fuck, that looks amazing. Like, the aesthetic does it for me. The music does it for me. The enormous monsters do it for me. Like, (laughs) the, the fact that, like, you're just left to figure it out, does it for me. It's basically a roguelike. And I was like, this is mm-hmm. my perfect game. And then I played it and I hated every second of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't get through Undeadburg. I hated it. The gameplay was slow. It was clunky. Every time I said, I don't like this game, people said, get good. And I said, <laughs> fuck you. I shouldn't have to work. Get out of here, gamer. Get out of here. Give me a difficulty setting. Let me make it easy. I just want to enjoy this game. And I did that for like every year, like annually, I would be like, today's the day. Today's the day I get good at Dice Souls. I'm, uh, Dice Souls, Dark Souls. I'm going to play Dark Souls. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enjoy it. And I get to the Firelink Shrine and be like, this fucking sucks. This is terrible. I hate this. And then January this year rolls around. And I finally, after a year of working through the Panacea, get furloughed and don't have to go to work for a month. And I was like, this is it. This is my time. I'm going to, Dark Souls is going to happen. And I don't know what happened, but I spent a week getting good at Dark Souls. And like, I've actually legitimately got good at it now. I still hate the controls. I hate playing it. I don't even know if I enjoy it, but I'm good at it. I'm going to get through it. (laughs) And I was like, and it's just one of those things like, you probably know yourself, like when you, when you make, games everything you do you look at it and you go i can make a game out of that mm-hmm. i can make mm-hmm. a game out mm-hmm. of that so i spent a solid week immersed in dark souls i had to write a game for patreon and i was like guess we're making a souls like but also i was really interested in like i love roguelikes i love souls likes games where you repeat sections over and over again and you learn the patterns and you start to at some point, you're not even really reacting and playing a game anymore. You're working on autopilot to get through it. Um, it's something that's really cool in video games and is very hard to do in tabletop. And Deep Anyway um, has a game called Beyond the Rift, which is one of the World Monomic games, which is a... Um, uh, they sell it as like a Metroidvania-style game. And the way they handle that repeat like die and retry thing is that you just narrate past it like you die and you basically narrate how did you pass this obstacle and what did you learn from doing it and then you move on Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And it's a really elegant way of doing it. But it doesn't give you the experience of actually physically doing it over and over again. And I mm-hmm. was like, cool. So how do we how do we do this on tabletop and have it be fun and not boring? Um and like that that was that was where Dice Souls came from, was going into it and being like, cool, how do we make this mechanically satisfying in a kind of how do we make the player repeat sections of the game and die repeatedly without hating it? Um mm-hmm. and I think I think I might have managed to do it. I don't know. Some people who've played it have been very positive about it, so that's a relief. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, one of the sort of pre-written questions I have on one of these tens of thousands of note cards I have in front of me. Um, I was going to ask you, what did you, when you were thinking of the idea and you were trying to distill Dark Souls into Dice Souls, mm-hmm. what did you what did you feel you had to capture about that game? And you have the, you know, obviously you could read the sections of Dice Souls and that's what you were trying to capture, right? But mm-hmm. when you were first gestating, yeah. what what was, what did you feel you need to capture from Dark Souls? And then do you feel like you accomplished that with this current iteration of design? Capturing those, those um, key gameplay loops, I guess, is yeah. one way to put it. So, like, the main thing, like I said, was the die and retry thing. And but that's like mechanical, like the base of the game. I think what was really important to capture was um, a few things. The sense that like the world doesn't care that you're in it mm-hmm. was one of the things mm-hmm. because that's something I get from Dark Souls. Like nothing in that world gives a shit that right. you were there. Um, and I wanted to capture the sense of like just having to discover your purpose and your own story as you go. Because, like, with, with so many, like, dungeon games especially, like, you go into it with a goal, with an explicit goal. And one of the things that I wanted to capture with Dice Souls, which I don't actually think is really the quick start does, because mm-hmm. there's not enough of it yet, is mm-hmm. that the your goal for the game and, like, your, your role in the world develop through play um, and that's something that I tried to, I've tried to achieve with the like the law questions. Every time you finish a section, you answer questions about the world. Um, because I didn't... It would have been very easy to write it like a D&D dungeon and be like, here is a dungeon that you're exploring, but then people would only be able to play it once. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to put some replayability into it without it being... I don't know. I've done that thing where I trail off and I forget what I'm saying. <laughs> no, you're super good. I love, cause one of the big thing, first of all, the, the piece that you point about the world doesn't care that you're in it is something I've never thought about for dark souls. And it really like sinks in because it makes you feel like you're not a chosen one. The story doesn't make you the chosen one to do something. You're just a guy that happens to be here in the first place and can do this thing that people need. You're not chosen. We'll wait for the next guy to come along yeah. and do the thing we're asking you to do, which, you know, if we talk about multiverse theory, maybe you're actually doing that in the game. And every time you respawn at the bonfire, it's just a different version of a you. Anyways, conspiracy theories, Reddit. <laughs> I'm looking at you. Uh, so I love that. But I think one of the pieces to sort of tap on is the my favorite 
part of souls is the lore discovery and how uh-huh. they do it. It's not cinematics. It's, it's all, and it's not like full exposition, like an NPC rival or a best friend comes and says, did you know in the 20th century that like, and then hits you for like a 10 minutes? It's like, no, you talk to the sun dude twice and you find out his entire or what backstory he wants to reveal to you. And you have to cobble together his entire backstory based on relationships with other NPCs, items you find in the world that have descriptions. You, it's like you are building your version of lore for Dark Souls, unless you, you know, go to Reddit and find the guy that looked for every single item yeah. <laughs> and cobble it together. But <laughs> you get a general through line, and I love the lore questions at the end because you're creating your own. This is something I, I think are one of my design principles as well, because I want to create a game where, or I want to create games where setting is built upon by all players at the table, yes. not just the game master. So, like, having those lore questions every time you overcome an obstacle is, is very cool. Like, I think the lore questions, I, I mean, if you think I'm talking shit when I say this, please do tell me. Um, like, Dice Souls would be very easy to make it and say this is a board game. Like, mm-hmm. you could give people, like, geomorphs to randomly put down tiles. It could be like Descent Journeys in the Dark for two players, right? Mm-hmm. And I think what makes it not a board game are the law questions because that's where the like it's not necessarily a role-playing game i think it's a story game rather than a role-playing game yeah um, yeah, yeah but yeah that's that's where the the collaborative world building part of it comes in that makes it not a board game i think because nobody's ever seen any of my board game designs but i definitely started designing board games before i was designing role-playing games they're all shit and um, and board games is such a hard industry to break into you need to have money behind you to be able to like prototype things and stuff Mm. so i i dropped that very quickly but there's definitely an element a part of me that still thinks in terms of board games when i'm making stuff so yeah it would have been very easy to be like here is definitely not dark souls the board game and it was a very (laughs) conscious decision to inject that world building stuff into it rather than writing like a law book for it say here are some broad things for you to think about you and your GM are going to make this world as you play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so the lore aspect, the dying over and over again, getting the feeling of that the world doesn't care that you're there. Were there any other sort of distillations you were trying to capture? I think like exploration was one of them. Was there anything else that you're trying to nab on? Um, I mean, everybody likes a multi-stage boss fight, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, um, and that's that's like that's a, that's a solved problem in role playing games. That's the thing games have been doing for years. So that was something that I wanted to bring in from Dark Souls, but it wasn't something I had to really like innovate to make. It's just mm-hmm. as simple as like D and D Fourth Edition did it. You know, you say this mm-hmm. enemy's at half hit points. Now it does this, but it's still fun. It's nice and easy. Yeah, actually, I wanted to ask you about. So, as always with the show. Uh, I never go in-depth in-depth with a game. I merely ask the philosophies and principles behind a game uh, because I want you to buy the game and read it and see what's going on. This is not a review or a spoiler (laughs) of the game because I want all these guests to make their money. But what I did want to ask you is that so something that that it feels like in my reading of the Dice Souls Quick Start is are, are the sort of the boss mechanics and the moves you provide for them, right? Oh, shit. You know what? I'd completely forgotten. (laughs) 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 
shit, maybe I should have read my game before we had this conversation. <laughs> no, you're super good. You make a lot of games. I make a lot. Um, there is, and the reason I want to ask this, because I've seen a lot of, because this has some, some, hmm, like you said, you didn't really innovate on bosses. You sort of took the same appeals that D&D and more traditional games have when it comes to boss creatures. Uh-huh. But a lot of people often talk about how, like, oh, you shouldn't have a single solution to a problem. But in your moves, you write in sort of like an auto-fail state. Like, the yes. the boss does is starting to intend to do an action that you write in italics. You do, like, a cool story little blurb that the GM should read. And then the player, you just say to the player, what do you do? And the player has to react. And they don't, if they don't react in the way the move presents, then it's, it seems like, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's an auto fail, right? Like yeah. they automatically take the damage from the creature. Yes. So the philosophy there was, so the way combat works with normal enemies is that the, the player says what they're going to do and then they roll to see how effective it is. And Mm -hmm. if the role is successful, the player hurts the enemy. And if the role is unsuccessful, the enemy hurts the player. Mm -hmm. It's like it's super simple, super like fast, lightweight combat. You're building dice pools and stuff. Um, And then, and that was like that was my experience with playing Dark Souls, which was like you learn the enemies very quickly, and it becomes like if you get hit by them, it's your fault. Yeah. And then you hit the bosses, and the bosses like turn it on its head completely and the bosses are like what up fucko i'm gonna end you yeah and so like i wanted to like mechanically turn that on its head and so what happens with the bosses is rather than you rolling to see if you hit them you are rolling to see if you avoid what they are doing so the boss comes down and like the gm says like i call them narrative telegraphs because people talk Mm -hmm. about bosses telegraphing their attacks in dark souls and it's just it's a term where like people who've played Dark Souls are going to know what it means straight away, I think. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, the boss does something, and then you say to the player, like, cool, what do you do? And it's not so much that the boss auto-hits, because if you get the answer wrong, you then roll to see if you avoid. Mm. But if you get the answer right, then you, you miss, and you automatically deal your damage to the boss. So it was trying to bring that, like, almost that player skill element of Dark Souls into it, where, like you learn how the boss telegraphs its attacks. And by the time you faced it for the third time, you know what it's going to do. And like, you see it pull in a big breath to breathe fire at you. And you're like, cool, I need to be 20 feet away from this fucker so it doesn't hit me. And then you tell the GM, yeah, I, I, I run away from it. And then it breathes yeah. its fire and you come in and hit it. And that tied into the, like, the guiding principle of me wanting to have players repeat things without like having to fully repeat them because every time you fail to a boss you automatically learn one of its telegraphs and you mm-hmm. learn the telegraphs through play anyway so by the time you're facing the boss for the third time you're like cool i've got your number now like i know what you're gonna do and i'm prepared to face it and then you get to kill it and that feels really good hopefully in theory <laughs> <laughs> in theory in theory um because like and sorry go, go on. ahead like no, my no, experience you... with dark souls and one of the reasons that i think i'm actually quite good at it is that like no boss has taken me more than three or four attempts to kill, apart from Quelag, who is awful, because um, she's just an enormous sack of hit points. But up until that point, like, I found myself learning the bosses really quickly, and like by the third time I fought them, I was like, yeah, I've got you now, and that was really cool, and I wanted to bring that 
into the game as well mm-hmm. and I didn't want the game I didn't want players to get stuck on one boss for four hours of their real life with their friend yeah. being like come on <laughs> please help me dude <laughs> uh, yeah I think it's interesting because I feel like a lot of people from that traditional space would be adverse to being like oh there is a solved answer to this move but if you uh there's an interesting Twitter thread that's running, but I don't want to get into here because it'd be a very it'd be a total delineation from <laughs> or a, a sidetrack, not delineation, sidetracking from from this. But I think there are some people out there who'd be adverse to this kind of concept when you think mm-hmm. about like, okay, I know that an ancient red dragon's fire breath is a sixty foot cone, so I know exactly where I need to position or where we need to position to not be grouped up. Right? It's the same concept. Yeah. Um, even though you've presented in sort of like a narrative bunker where it says you have to jump or run away or get in closer. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I don't know. I just find that interesting because I think what it unlocks for me is sort of a permission to be like, you're allowed to have a sol a solvable problem. Like I come from, I, I think about a lot of these, these people who scream on Twitter or in Reddit or whatever uh, about like, make sure to have a ton of options for your players at any given moment. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a space for that. But I think now that there's also a space for like, this is the answer and it gives your players something tangible to feel progression towards. Right. Yeah. I think that's why I like it, it or I like this permission that you've granted me now so, <laughs> is that it allows for, for an answer. Yeah. The, that was something I thought about when I was writing it. And there's, there's two reasons I did that. Um, aside from what I've already talked about with wanting to emulate dark souls a bit. Um, the first being that like the only mechanics in the game are for combat. Like, that's the only thing that you're all dice for is fighting and like anyone who's played modern versions of D knows that like when a fight goes on for an hour it's really boring and so mm-hmm. i wanted it to be mm-hmm. i wanted it to be done quickly um and that helps with it being done quickly the other thing was that like yeah there's all this narrative about give your players lots of options and like players shouldn't use and i'm doing air quotes with my fingers that jeremy can see but our listeners can't Meta game thinking that players shouldn't meta game, and that's bullshit. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. like, especially coming from like an AD and D background when I was a kid, like, you were absolutely expected to be like, We're fighting a troll. I have fought trolls before as a player, I know that they are vulnerable to fire and acid, so we are going to kill it with fire and acid. Because if you didn't do that, you'd get murdered mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. game balance is a myth, right. <laughs> it's like, true it's absolutely true modern versions are much more concerned with like all the numbers go up evenly mm-hmm. you know and it's it's even the same in in video games like you look at a game like say fallout 3 where you walk out of that vault and you can immediately go and get murdered by massive scorpions that you're not high enough level to be facing mm-hmm. versus a game like doom 2016 where like every enemy you face is at a level that you're capable of fighting. Mm -hmm. And I definitely wanted to lean on the side of you will get murdered if you're, if you don't use all the tools at your disposal, including your own brain as a player, Mm -hmm. because that's what dark souls does to you. Like the number of times I've wandered away from the firelink shrine into that graveyard and been absolutely annihilated (laughs) by giant skeletons. (laughs) 
I know exactly what you're talking Because <laughs> it's also been me. Yeah, everyone's done it. Uh, and I wanted people to have that. Like, so the quick start only has one region in it, but in the, in the bigger game, you absolutely can wander into places that you shouldn't be yet and just get yourself absolutely murdered. I love it. I love it so much. I constantly think about, because I'm playing a lot of Monster Hunter lately, and I constantly think about fighting the monster where you have to, you know, figure out its attack patterns and what it's capable of doing. And even then, like, if you figure it out, do you have a, a, a strong enough defensive armor that you're not one-shotted over and over yeah. and over again? Magnamalo is the <laughs> first monster to beat the shit out of me. So for any of you Rise players first. out there, I'm sorry. I was trying to go faintless, but it's not happening now. <laughs> um, but... I do, I think, I, I think we share the similar space in the sense that when a game has a setting in it, I think there should be spaces where, like, your, the player should be able to flex their knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. I, uh, uh, in the D&D example of, like, you shouldn't metagame, it's impossible. It's impossible not to metagame. It's impossible possible you cannot separate yourself from your character in the sense of what knowledge you do and do not have the second you read the monster manual like if you're a dm playing in another person's game unless they're homebrewing shit which you know another side tangent if you're letting your dm homebrew monsters then dms you should absolutely be letting your players use homebrew classes because where's the balance there am i right (laughs) uh but if this is a game where i've already fought the entire like Volo's Guide to Monsters or I've read the whole book I'm sorry I know that it's resistant to psychic damage deal I brought the right cleric tools today you know what I mean so like (laughs) and like people always talk about oh you shouldn't meta game but like let's say we're going down a corridor a 10 foot by 10 foot square corridor and it's perfectly clean and there are gold coins floating just further down like as a player I know that's a gelatinous cube and I know not to walk into it right so I've got two decisions to make there the first is use that knowledge and be like, my character says, I put, get out my 10-foot pole and poke it to see what's there. And at that point, people are like, oh, you can't use metagame knowledge. But the other decision is, I'm going to pretend that I don't know that, and my character doesn't know that, and I'm going to have my character walk into it and get mm-hmm. hurt. That's still using metagame knowledge. You're just doing it to the advantage of the DM rather than the player. Yeah, you're forcing yourself to play suboptimally. Yeah, you're forcing your characters to make a decision that... Your, your character's making a decision with the knowledge that you as a player have either way. The only reason people say it's... The only time people say it's bad is when it benefits the characters. And that's bullshit. That's absolute yeah. bullshit. And it's like... Sorry, this has turned to a D&D rant, but... I'm fine. It's also like... <laughs> they, are, they are paid adventurers and dungeoneers. They're yes. going to be cautious... At every turn, you always have the rogue go out fucking goddamn 50 feet and roll investigation checks till the sun comes up. So, like, why can't my fighters be like 10-foot pole? I just want to be sure, dude. Yeah, (laughs) that's why I love... um, I've been playing a lot of Dungeon Crawl Classics funnel adventures where you're, like, Mm -hmm. level zero peasants who explicitly, like, know nothing and have never been into a dungeon and don't know what the fuck they're doing and they're armed with pitchforks and shovels and sticks but you have four characters each so it's really fun to be like cool i as chris as the player know that there's a falling block trap behind that door but charlie the level zero schmo doesn't know 
And it's really fun to be like, yeah, he just breezes through and sets that off and he's going to go splat and he's going to die. But it's, it's fine because I've got three other characters and it's really fun. And like games that give you permission to lean into that meta knowledge either way, mm-hmm. I just think are more fun than games that try and take themselves too seriously. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Super with it. Um, on the subject of like additional regions, so in the quick start you provide a region, but mm-hmm. I was curious if the main game has uh, a built-in setting or if it has region generation uh, options. Yeah, so... A little bit of both. Um, mm-hmm. I have built... So the first region in the quick start is like the the drowned village, I think it's called. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And that was very much designed to evoke uh, Undeadburg. The rest of the regions I've tried to be like, cool, but this game isn't Dark Souls. Like I'm trying to do some different stuff with it. But they, it has set regions. So I've got like... What are some of the regions? Uh, the Botanical Gardens is one. Um, I have an enormous, crumbling old library. Um, there is, obviously, there are catacombs because what kind of dungeon game doesn't have catacombs? Come on. <laughs> everyone loves, everyone loves a, a proper dungeon crawl. Um, so they have defined locations, but they don't have a defined setting, if that makes sense. Like yes, the yep. setting emerges from the lore questions. And the law questions might point you in the direction of a setting that I have in my head, but there's nothing explicit about that in the text of the game other than the Mm -hmm. fact that these locations exist and they link together in this particular configuration. Um, Like this region, it's like the botanical gardens could lead to this region or this region. Like they link together in a like flowchart. But within mm-hmm. the regions, you generate where everything comes together itself. And one of the goals, like I haven't finished writing the game yet, which is why it's not out. But one of the things I want to write is um, maybe not tools for generating new regions, but guidelines for how to make your own regions. Like mm-hmm. here are some mm-hmm. things, here are some design principles, and here are the elements of a region. This is how you make your own, I think mm-hmm. is something that mm-hmm. I want to put in the game. Um, it's it's tempting to fill the back of the book with like hundreds of pages of random roll tables, but at that point I might as well write a setting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think there will definitely be a chapter that is like, these regions are just an example of what exists in this world. Feel free to make your own, because why wouldn't you? Yeah, some very nice like wireframing style yeah. options. Uh which again is another like as you say like permission because now in the game I'm working on Kaleidoscope, it has like a bunch of tables in the back. One I'm going to keep for, like monster generation things because that's mm-hmm. like the shtick. You get a lot of like hybrid creatures, but um, I think having some more like what would I call it like narrative frameworks. Like when people think about the three act structure and how there has to be a climax yeah. and stuff, I think that stuff is also applicable to. Gen- I'm now also quoting in the air for me, Chris. <laughs> uh, but generation methods, right? It's not always tables. It's also outlining what uh, what I, as the designer, intended for this section to look like. Here's yeah. how you can do it too, and then you know that leads us, that can lead us in the conversations about SRDs and quick starts and stuff yes. like that. That's so. Uh, one of the things that I'm going to do. I'm not doing an SRD for it because that's a lot of work. But I am doing the Troika license for it. 
Um, mm-hmm. Because I know that like Spencer Campbell wants to write the Bloodborne version of Dice Souls. Um, although may- maybe he might be a bit more hesitant now after what happened with Frame. Yeah. Because uh, the internet is awful. And Frame was great and the true. internet killed it. Fuck you, internet. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, a few people have said, like, <sighs> I want to write a version of Dice Souls in this setting. And so, like, I'm going to put the Troika license on it just to give people explicit permission to be like, yeah, you can mess with this. Um, but I'm also hoping that other people will be like, here's a region I made for it. Here's a bunch of monsters I made for it. And so, like the content of the game won't just be what I put in that book is the plan. And I probably will run a game jam when it comes out as well and be like, make some stuff for this game and here's the free... Well, it won't be an SRD. I'll do it like Troika where like, here's a text-only version in a Google document. It's free. If you want the full laid-out R-word version, please pay me, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, And it's cool because it creates its... You're looking forward to kind of create its own supplement ethos, right? Or sorry, ethos. uh, Ecosystem is what I meant to say. Totally. And um, it's interesting because I, you know, me and Spencer have talked at lengths about like live design and what does that look like and what does that ecosystem look like? And uh, as much as we also sort of shoot our shots (laughs) against Hasbro, uh, we also look at like how the D and D beyond model has garnered some success in being attached to the brand yes. and how to make a better DMs guild. Cause uh, you know, yeah. the cut that they take is just insane. And like all of the idea mining that the yeah. company does from there, it makes me throw up dude. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things where like, I'm like, so the links my brain just went through this is going to feel completely like a non sequitur or whatever um oh my god has the thought just disappeared completely from my brain <laughs> for non sequiturs oh no oh no what was i gonna say we were um, we were talking dm's guild i we was were. talking about how i hate it it was swarmy oh, right. so we were talking about thank you we were talking about like putting in not just tools for making new stuff but like commentary about like here is the ethos here are the guiding principles I used. This was what I was intending. Here's how you can use them to make your own stuff, right? And it's interesting because a lot of indie games do that. And you look at D&D, mm-hmm. they have the DMs Guild and they say, feel free to make your stuff. But like, they never actually tell you how to do it. So mm-hmm. in the, like, I'm really good at making D&D 5th edition monsters. I really understand how that system works, but it's not because mm-hmm. I learned it from the Dungeon Master's Guide because it's got a page in it. I think it's page 297 of the Dungeon it's Master's Guide. It's a garbage guide. page. Yeah. Like, it ostensibly explains to you how to make a monster, but it tells you, the information it gives you is garbage. Like, you make a monster and then you figure out the challenge rating at the end and th- no. That's not how they made the monsters for that game. They didn't yeah, say, yeah. oh, I wonder what challenge rating this monster is. They went, we need 10 challenge ratings, seven monsters. Here are the formulas we need to do that. This is how we do it. Yeah. They don't yeah. want you to make stuff that's as good as their stuff because then you're a threat to them. So they don't mm-hmm. actually tell you how to do it. And I want you to make stuff that's better than my stuff because that's fun for me. So mm-hmm. I'm absolutely going to put in dice souls like, here is how you make a monster. Here are the principles of how you make shit. Please go away and make stuff that I could never have made myself because, yeah, like I had that with the wretched jam. Like we made, I made the wretched. Matt Sanders made the wretched and alone system reference document. We did the jam, and like people made games. And from day one, people were doing things with the wretched system that I never would have thought to do. 
like just different ways of interacting with the tower, different ways of telling stories with it. And it blew my mind. It was the best feeling in the world. And I want that for every game that I make. There's um, on the on the subject of one. Yes, absolutely. Because we are but one person each. Right. And we have our own uh, sort of life experience. And that may not be the same as someone else. And that may educate different creative choices for that individual. And that yeah. just creates a resonance you know, that's how we get to cars and televisions and electronics and telecommunication devices, because someone kept taking ideas and asking different what ifs that we could have never approached by yes. ourselves. Right. Um, that's why people have collaborations and teams. But on the subject of just as a quick aside, if ever if anyone does want to know sort of the science behind what like the difference between creating your own monster as proposed by Wizards of the Coast and an actual like detailed analysis of like Mordenkainen's Volos and the Monster Manual. There is an article on the I believe it's called the bagofholding.com blog, and there is an article called the Business Card 5e Monster. And the writer just goes in on analyzing like, okay, so like a CR4 monster usually has an attack scale about this. He like has a bunch of like uh, linear graphs that show like the correlation points of every monster in the book. He's like CR uh, 14 and higher monsters are crazy because they have no correlation whatsoever. They're so far on the scatter plot that um, it does not make any feasible sense to be tied into the tables that Wizards of the Coast provided to you. And like there's very and it and, you know, they also talk about how you should start CR first to make a decision about creating a monster, because that'll tell you exactly the power level you have to work within. Like, is it going to yeah. have plus seven or plus eight attack? I don't know. It's a CR nine, so it can kind of go either way. But I do know it can only have an average of 110 hit points because that's what the game is structured to do. Right. Like it's just all this. It's fun information. Go check it out. I'll If I remember, I'll put a link in the show notes for people to yeah. go check out that article. Because like, I, I don't do cool. much D&D stuff anymore at all. Yeah. Um, but like if you're listening to this and you do D&D 5th edition and you want to learn how to make monsters properly, not the way Hasbro would have you believe they're made, <laughs> drop me a DM on Twitter. And like if I like I will find some time to run you through how to do it because it's super easy. Mm, like mm. it's so straightforward. Um, if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Yeah. Um when you were talking about like when you were saying everything then, like all I was thinking was that like Art is a conversation, right? All yeah. art is a conversation, and your work is always in conversation with the other people, like your peers and the other creators and the other work that you read. And I think corporations exist to stifle that conversation. Mm-hmm. And the best mm-hmm. thing we can do, other than not talk about Hasbro for 40 minutes, which I'm sorry that I've brought us to doing that. <laughs> but the best I thing think we it's always, do... you know, when we examine the tabletop role-playing game sphere, this is the, like the big elephant in the room for yeah. everyone that's on the indie scene. So yeah, I I'm did chill. hear someone say the other day, actually, that like we need to start thinking about role-playing games as a hobby, as being separate from D and D as a hobby. Mm, interesting. interesting interesting i could vibe with that yeah i can be into that like i actively don't talk about D on my twitter feed anymore mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. i can avoid it sometimes you can't help it sometimes you have to write a shit post of a game and have dicebreaker <laughs> cover it <laughs> yeah yeah thanks james oh uh, blah poor poor h-e-t paladin uh yeah and Ryan black bro. yeah all the whole the whole shebang but um kill all dragons but all dragons are bastards (laughs) (laughs) welcome to the dragon room we're all bastards uh amazing so i think we gotta uh as far as dice souls is concerned in addition to creating the game you have also made a soundtrack for it to go along and amazing like immersive branding it, it, so if i if i may describe it it's just you it's may. so cool because it's reminiscent of like the ps2 box yeah back in the day you would see on gamestop and inside you will get a copy of the game and a cd of the sound it's just it's i'm like opening it up imaginatively at my desk right now Imagining that I'm seeing it. I'm going to show you one because we're on camera. Hang on. (gasps) Chris has left the seat. Chris is walking. 
I'm narrating this. I can see a bookshelf. Ooh, Alice is Missing is also another great soundtrack game. Okay, I don't have the CD press pressed or the books pressed, but I do have the yes. cases. It looks pressed. just like it. Yeah. So there's nothing inside yet. Yeah. But hang on, hang on, little <laughs> Easter egg. I love that this oh, is yeah. a podcast and only you can see this. Uh, yeah, yeah. Reversible I think I remember cover. Te- yeah, reversible yeah, sleeve. reversible. Woo, woo. Yeah, um, so the original, oh, this was when I had all the free time in the world on my hands and I was like, I'm going to publish a game in a video game box with a CD and that won't take three months of my life. Um, spoiler <laughs> alert, this game was meant to come out in February. <laughs> but whatever. Um, I yeah. originally, it's cool that you said PS2. Like I originally was looking on eBay at like, because I'm manufacturing them myself. Mm. I was looking on eBay at like job lots of PS2 games. I was going to be like, how many how much would it cost me to buy 200 PS2 games and just like throw the discs and the sleeves away and use the boxes? Oh, God. It, it was cheaper to just buy 200 DVD cases. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when really they're the same thing at the end of the day, honestly. They're exactly the same, yeah. Uh, it's amazing. It's going to be an amazing product. Uh, the quick start is free over on uh, Chris's Itch, and I'm sure also the website as well, Loot the Room, the website, yes? Yeah, um, there are pre-orders for the physical on the website, and like they link to the, uh, the quick start on Itch. Amazing. I love it. I'm in love with it. Uh, great example of a quick start. Please check it out uh, and buy, buy the buy the fucking game. Just buy the just buy the game. Please, please pre-order, buy the game. Pre- pre-order bills. To uh, buy the give Chris your money. Open your wallet. <laughs> All your money. Open your wallet. Turn yourself <laughs> open your down and shake yourself by the foot. <laughs> I love it. Are there trends that you're seeing in your social spheres, your community spheres about game design in any facet, whether that's business related, uh, publishing, anything Um, doesn't just have to be like design principles Mm -hmm. or anything like that. Are there any trends that you're seeing that you think are really cool for the scene lately? Or are there any trends that you're seeing that might be detractful that you sort of want to caution people against? Or are there any trends within yourself that you want to speak out into the ether to have someone latch on to and be like, I want to execute that idea? I mean, can we talk about Keegan and itch funding? Yes, like, absolutely holy shit. we can. So a brief history of itch funding by Chris Bissett. Uh, <laughs> there was a brain trust episode called Degreening where Adam and Will talked about the need to get away from Kickstarter as being the backbone of everyone's income and ways that we can make that happen and they talked about all sorts of things like bounty boards and using set reverse sales and things like that and some time passed and people figured out ways to emulate some of the features of crowdfunding on itch i think jeff stormer did it with anyone can wear the mask Mm -hmm. um orderly publishing are doing it with um oh i forget the name of the game um a horror game that I completely have forgotten the name of right now. But if basically, you want to look it up. I will look it up. I'll look it up. Yeah, yeah. I can do that. We're Let not live on the internet. We're editing this thing. We're doing it live. Boom, 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 boom. 
several hours later. <laughs> uh, so that meme is going to hold up for eternity. It's never going to go away, is it? <laughs> Where are you? Come here, Twitter. Odelay Publishing is... So, yeah, they are in, I believe, the Ukraine. Uh, I could be wrong. But they don't have access to Kickstarter. It's not available in their country. Uh, mm-hmm. For the same reason that we saw Sandy Pug Games launch our shows with all the RPG Southeast Asia mm-hmm. folks. Kickstarter isn't a, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, just run a Kickstarter. Some people in the world are physically unable to because Kickstarter won't let them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's another reason why it's really important to have alternative funding methods for people. Um, so Orderly Publishing are doing a narrative horror game uh called domains uh which at the time of recording this has raised about 200 euros of a 605 euro goal uh you should go and check it out but yeah um so keegan has launched this uh card site that is a list of all the current itch funding projects that are ongoing uh and it's, it's starting to pick up some steam like Mm -hmm. this is becoming a thing that people do and i'm really excited to see it because like i don't my business plan this year is to run three kickstarters and i've run one already and i'm exhausted yeah (laughs) like um so yeah anything anything that decentralizes power from one source and Mm -hmm. helps people who don't have access to markets get access to markets is a good thing and itch funding is a great idea uh keegan's doing a really great job of getting eyes on it for people um yeah go check that out i think what's keegan's twitter i think it's just at keegan exe that is correct yeah Yeah. Uh, go check out keegan um don't follow or perceive them because they'll hate that um but Mm. do do click on the um do click on the itch funding card link yeah (laughs) (laughs) Love you, Keeg. Uh, <laughs> yes, the it, the topic of itch funding is getting hotter and hotter as I bring guests onto the show, and this show continues to evolve, uh, evolve with the intent of really finding. Listen, I don't have a game out yet per the recording of this episode. Hopefully, that changes very soon. Uh, I have a couple of ideas for ash cans that I want to put out there, but that's aside from the point. I don't want to run. A Kickstarter, like it, from everyone, sort of like I know it can be very beautiful, but I think those beautiful moments are far and few in between, and have slightly skewed um, uh, effectiveness towards people that already have the money to lay down for really big projects. So I think it's sort of a pie in the sky situation for a lot of, I don't know, more everyman or average Joe or common casual designer, yeah. and so. What I love about itch funding is that it's really in your control. Because when you when you you have to play by Kickstarter's terms when it comes to running Kickstarter, not always, but um, when you talk about concepts like Zine Quest, which is itself a bastardization of sort of like the intent behind Zine Quest, right? Or creating zines, it's that you have 14 days or whatever to go inside their advertisement. And meanwhile, you're receiving all of this pressure from their intern to my knowledge. 
This is secondhand sources. I've not run a Kickstarter. I want to exclaim that. But secondhand source wise, there's a lot of like internal mumbo jumbo of like they hit you with newsletters and say, hey, here's things you could be doing to boost up your, that stretch goal. Right. Or, you know, yeah. you should have stretch goals, blah, 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 blah. And it's like they're constantly pushing you from behind to like keep going even when you're tired. Yeah. Um, and I think what's cool about itch funding for me is that it's at your own pace. You set your own terms. It's like uh, I feel like Kickstarter is the equivalent of and this is not a dismiss. I just think people are built differently. It's like the equivalent of someone like taking on a job for someone else. It's like working at a corporation or something like that. And they, they set your deadlines. They set your pay. They set this, they set that. Whereas like itch funding is sort of the concept of like, you're now starting your own business. You're running your own website. You're accumulating your own funds and you're paying your own taxes. There, there's no one doing that for you. And that has its own challenges. But I think there's a very cool free, thing when you're not a part of that Kickstarter yeah. ethos and playing by their terms. Kickstarter is definitely like it's very corporate and it changes the way you think about things for the time that you're running the campaign and the fact that it is all or nothing like mm-hmm. it encourages you to set they don't explicitly encourage you but the way Kickstarter works encourages you to set a lower goal so that you fund because if you don't hit your goal you don't get any money Mm-hmm. So, like, when I did D36, um, I set a realistic goal and realistic stretch goals to do, like, one epi- one issue and then issue two, three, and four. And we funded on day one, we hit issue one, and then, like, we were just crawling towards the other issues, and it was super stressful, and I ended up revising my goals down in order to make sure we got to do more issues. Um... And, like, I think had I gone into that campaign with a lower initial goal, if I'd asked for two grand, not four, it would have funded within the first ten minutes. And that momentum would have carried us on and I think we'd have probably made more money. But the Mm -hmm. risk would have been that we'd have funded and only just funded and not actually had enough money to do the project. And that's really dangerous. But with Itch, it's not all or nothing. Like you can throw up a goal of $1,000 and you might only make 200 but you get the $200 and you can do something with that. It's not mm. a case of, well, tough luck, buddy, try again. Like, no, you've got this money and then you can do something with it. And then maybe now that you've had that 200 bucks and you pay someone to make a cover, that makes the game look more attractive and then more people come in and they throw more money at it, you know? Mm-hmm. It's... Mm-hmm. I haven't done it myself yet, but it seems like a much healthier way to do it. And I hope it takes off. I really hope people start recognizing it as being a genuine, real thing that people are doing. Because all it's lacking is the marketing push and the visibility of Kickstarter. Yeah. And um, the other thing is, like, not just on the co- like on the creator front, but also the consumer front. Because Itch is mainly a video game platform mm-hmm. first. Um, but... You know, we as the as Spencer said, we are the barnacle on the underwhale of <laughs> of games. Yes. And we're sort of like just caught like kind of just suctioning on for dear life as we try <laughs> to find a new platform. Um but not only on a creator basis, but for a consumer basis as well, to kind of like you said, get that attention, but also on itch to create more tools to uh make a smoother purchasing 
process, a smoother like collaboration process. So if there's anyone from itch listening, like there are people out there who are really trying to figure out how to get some cool tools, uh, to your to your site and we have you know i think what's important to say about this itch funding is that itch funding is maybe the first step in a long yes. series of steps to the green from kickstarter this isn't the answer this is the path to the answer that we're looking for as far as creating a space finding the tools that we as designers need and the other thing to point out is that Itch funding and Kickstarter currently, it, as of the recording of this episode and my thinking about both of these structures as an outside perspective, is that they both have their uses. Kickstarter can fund a project that has a really large scope to it, right? I don't know if I don't know if itch funding because like when you think about board games, right? Like we were just talking about, board games are terribly expensive. Yes. uh, And they need a lot of upfront dollars. And it can be sort of a safety net for you to use a Kickstarter method of like, cool, if we don't get all uh, 10K for all the pieces we need for the the board game, we don't do it, right? It's not something like we can like piecemeal together. It's something that we have to have a lot of upfront money for. Whereas for tabletop RPGs, maybe itch funding is the way to go if you're just like sort of creating as you go. You set goals for yourself like, hey, if this makes... $1,000, $1,000, I will add, uh, I will start working on some regions or I'll release the character sheet, you know, whatever the structure yeah. of your game takes. Uh, I'll add this, I'll add that. I'll be able to get art for the game. Uh, here's some preview concepts to really think about hitting that stretch goal. Like you can build the stretch goals in such a way that it's very elongated for your personal progress, especially if you're working on multiple projects. Like a lot of the people I've talked to on the show are, we have a ton of ideas in our head. We are constantly making five games at one time (laughs) and like being so soul focused on a Kickstarter that you have to, because the, also the, the sort of, Um, what do I want to say community around Kickstarter feels that they are very deserving of the deadlines. Right. Uh, and so when, when we think about itch funding, not only that, but like you can present flexible goals for yourself and say, Hey, once I hit this, I will start working on it. I won't put the next stretch goal out until it's done. Right. Or something like that. Unlike, So Kickstarter makes a big point of saying we are not a pre-order store. You are investing in an idea. But let's be honest, like these Mm -hmm. days, Kickstarter is a pre-order store. And I think what itch funding in its current incarnation allows us to do is say, no, you are invested in an idea here. Like here is two pages with what I've done on this game. I need $500 to make it happen. Uh, Mm -hmm you are going to give me some money and you might not get anything for that money because I might not raise the $500. Take a chance on me. Like you can't really do that with Kickstarter. Like I did it. I tried to do it with D36. I had the, um, the subscription tier where I was like, this game costs $8. There are going to be four issues. If you give me $24 right now, you're going to get all four issues. If we unlock them. Mm Mm-hmm. And we didn't unlock them. We only unlocked three. And one of the reasons I dropped my goals was because like a week into the campaign, we'd only unlocked two and I was getting really shitty messages off people being like, Uh, I've paid you $24 and I'm only going to get two issues of this. Yeah, I feel like I'm being robbed. And I was like, I was very clear in the text (laughs) of that reward that this was an investment in an idea and you weren't guaranteed to get everything. But people didn't want to hear it. 
Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. itch, itch allows us to do that in a way that Kickstarter claims it allows us to do. But the reality of Kickstarter is, nah, nah. Like, yeah. you almost need to be going to Kickstarter now with a finished project in pocket and just being like, please give me some money for this. It's yeah. I see it as a way to build. I use Kickstarter mainly now for their marketing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, interesting. I wonder... I don't know what the repercussions are of like starting a Kickstarter in this idea, but like maybe there is a sense to game the game in that if you're going to, if they have the advertising, just make, just make a, a close goal of something. (laughs) One that you know you won't hit. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then, you know, you don't hit it. It is what it is. And then you put an update saying, but we're going to do this on itch. So come on to itch. Yeah, I wonder I wonder if that's feasible. I don't I don't again, like I don't have any Kickstarter experience, so I don't know if that's a a a big like breach of something. I don't feel like it is by how it's set up, but yeah, I mean, there's nothing stopping you. So here's here's a tactic that I've used on Kickstarter. Um to this is god, this people are going to f- fucking hate me when they hear this. <laughs> no. So I don't I've hate done you. this I've done this twice on Kickstarter now which is I launched a Kickstarter a week into the campaign, having funded, I release another game. I give it free to backers, give everyone who has backed the Kickstarter currently an itch download code. Three, 400 people go and download it on itch. It goes to the top of the itch charts. At the top of that page, I say, hey, I've got a Kickstarter running right now. People who didn't get to the game from Kickstarter see it on itch, go to the page to get the new game that I've released and see a link saying, come back my Kickstarter and come and back the Kickstarter project. Do it. I think it's genius. It works. I think it's diabolical. It's not, I think it's genius. It's awful. I feel like a horrible person no, for doing it. But I, game no, the system, you know? No, I don't feel that way. I think it is... I mean, look at fucking... Uh, think about social media, right? Like, think about how, hey, I use my Twitter to get you to my website, or hey, I use my YouTube to get you to my website. It's the same thing. It's the same yeah. thing. Like, it's it didn't have a huge effect because, like, discoverability on itch isn't great. Yeah. And, like, it's hard to promote a new game when you're in the middle of promoting a Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. But it definitely had a measurable effect. When I was doing The Wretched, I gave away... Disco- so, I wrote the discovery of witches as a like social media stretch goal. It mm-hmm. was one of those, if the wretched gets 300 backers, like 300 followers before I launched the campaign, I'll write another wretched in a loan game and I'll give it away free to backers. And so I wrote that on the stream. I launched the wretched a week later. I released it and gave it away free to backers as promised. And I dropped the link on itch. And I think, I mean, the wretched did really well. The wretched got 1100 backers. Um, and I think, 200 of them came through itch from the discovery of witches game and then at the end of the wretched campaign i used back a kit and i did an add-on for the discovery of witches in print which was almost like being able to do a second kickstarter right off the back of the wretched because Mm. 500 people then bought the discovery of witches in print while they were checking out the wretched through back a kit and that was like, it was life changing for me. Like that, the wretched Kickstarter campaign paid off debts that I'd had for eighteen years, 
Amazing. So, like, just come up with crazy out-of-the-box shit that you can try and do and see what happens because that was really, like, I made an extra $5,000 off a game that I wrote in a week just by saying, here it is for free. Oh, by the mm-hmm. way, do you want it in print? Of course I do. <laughs> yeah. I want to assert my status in my home. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think that's I think that's a baller move. <laughs> I think that <laughs> Ty Lopez, uh, Lamborghini <laughs> and book expert, would be fucking proud of you. Uh, fucking fake guru of the century. Oh my but, god. <laughs> Well, welcome 2005. I'm glad you're here. Oh, Where, whatever the Lopez. fuck you existed. Yeah. <laughs> I just re- someone uh, reminded me about him the other day when I was playing Monster Hunter, but uh, I totally just thought of him now. Oh, my but God. Here's the that's thing. a name here's I thing. haven't uh, heard in so long. <laughs> on the real, on the real in like this world of capitalism that we live in. It's important to like for everyone out there that's like, oh, I hate capitalism. I hate what it does to our world. I hate how it influences a lot of our market structure and also like our uh, demographical ethos and, and all these other things until we can get to a point where we can start. To, uh, when the world can start playing a new game, like right now, everyone's playing D&D and we're trying to get everyone <laughs> to play a new game. <laughs> We have to learn how to play the game, right? Like, we have to be the smart players who are metagaming. So, like, if we want to abuse the things that Kickstarter lets us abuse until they don't, I'm here for it. Fucking let it rip, dude, because I want to see you make money. And it may be complicated and it may be frustrating, but I think the dividends that Chris is spelling out for us, I think they're, I think they're, I think the tactics are genius. I think it's definitely something to consider. Don't hate the, don't hate the game, hate the player, but it's absolutely the way around, isn't it? Like, don't hate the player, hate yeah. the game. The game sucks. Yeah. The game absolutely sucks, but we are we are forced to play right now, and I'm here to break every rule I can. <laughs> yeah, like... Uh, just, like, I... Kickstarter is a corporation. Like, they, you don't owe them shit. Yep. Abuse their platform as much as you possibly can. Yeah. Like, use their marketing, use their advertisement. It's on autopilot for some of it. There's not a yeah. person behind there blasting out emails. Like, like no, you put in a link to your itch page in a Kickstarter update does not hurt Kickstarter. And even if it does, fuck them. They didn't want to let their, their staff unionize. Screw them. Yep. They don't want to let what hundreds of other countries participate in their global fun the quote-unquote global phenomenon that is kickstarter <laughs> get out of here dude for some definitions of the word global <laughs> Chris, you, are, bre- on a you are awakening something in me right now <laughs> i am getting fired up hello i am chris from the uk and my goal in life is to make everybody a socialist <laughs> let's go um amazing Um, okay, so last last bit here. Chris, this is the TLDR tip su- uh, section. If people want to just scrub to the end if they've been listening to the show and know that this is coming, uh, we're going to find a tip for the listeners. It doesn't have to be about anything in particular that we talked about today. Usually I roll for this, but my dice keeps coming up four, and I keep making people have to give marketing advice, so I'm probably going to start structuring these. Do you want me to uh, roll for it? 
No, no, I have, <laughs> you did a, so I actually want to ask you for yeah. this one. You did a panel uh, or a conversation a couple weeks ago about accessibility yes. in, in designing. And as I create, as I think about more and more as my design principles focused on creating tabletop role-playing games in a virtual space, really abusing digital, virtual tabletop platforms, I want to create I think it has a lot of accessible implications that print just doesn't have the um, scope to attain mm-hmm. uh, in our in its current iteration. And so I was wondering if there are any tips, resources, tools, uh, tips and tricks that you could provide people in terms of accessibility when designing their games oh. or even business structured wise. Wow, that's a good question. And I wish I had a really intelligent, like straight off the top of my head answer for it. Um, Take your time. Take your time. God, I don't actually jam with you. Yeah, Um, accessibility is something that I've only recently started to become aware of, and it's one of those things where, like, the more you learn about it, the more you realize how much there is to learn. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've been quite—I'm very lucky in that I don't really have many accessibility needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, it's very easy to not think about it because that's just the way people work, right? It doesn't affect yeah. me, so I'm not going to think about it. It's like the definition of privilege, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, that panel with, um, oh, it was Dungeons on a Dime and Yubi um, mm-hmm. on the Games on a Dime series. Um, I learned, like, even though I was on the panel because we're doing a screen reader accessible PDF for D36. I learned so much from talking to Yubi about accessibility needs and what accessibility is and why it's important and how to address it. And like the main takeaway I took from that, from what Yubi was saying, is that accessibility as a field is still very new. And nobody yeah. has all the answers. And there is no one size fits all for accessibility because everyone has different needs. Um, and so I think the things that you, that we as designers can be doing immediately without having to invest in new software or learn new software, things that we can do immediately is content warn your shit. Mm-hmm. Like put content warnings on things like, that is an accessibility thing because if someone has triggers around something and they read your game not knowing about them, that's harmful. And that game, like, it's not accessible to them. Like, accessibility isn't just about, like, disability. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So content warn your shit because you can do that. It costs you nothing. It's just polite. It's just the right thing to do. So do it. It will take you five mm-hmm. minutes. Um, put out a plain text version of your game you Mm -hmm. don't even like I've been doing it I've been giving them away for free recently and being like here's the plain text version Uh, if you want the full laid out version pay me for it but have the plain text version for free you don't even have to do that like being able to give your stuff away for free again is a mark of privilege like not everybody Mm -hmm. can do that but Everybody can drop their game text into a Google Doc or a Word Doc and just have, like, very little formatting, just headers and, like, plain text spaced out. 
and bundle that with your PDF. And that's PDFs aren't very screen reader accessible. You have to do some work mm-hmm. to make them accessible. But a plain document with very little formatting or just even literally like dumped into a notepad file with no formatting is perfectly accessible for a screen reader. It won't look pretty, but it doesn't need to look pretty. Um, and you can do that right now. Like that will take you two minutes to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and put when you when you tweet things, links to your games, etc. Put alt text on your images. Mm-hmm. Don't tweet an image without alt text on it. It's it's weird at first. It, it's learning how to write alt text can feel really bizarre. Um, but I've just been approaching it as like. If my partner was across the room, I'm pointing. Why am I pointing? <laughs> I'm not pointing at anyone. I'm gesturing to nobody. Um, <laughs> if my partner was across the room and I wanted to show them a picture on my phone and she was like, well, I'm busy. Can you just tell me what it is? And what would I say to describe this picture? And I just, I write that into the alt text on Twitter and I send it. And I'm not perfect. I do still send some images without alt text, especially when I'm at work and shit posting. But um, yeah, just just put alt text on your images because it's just it's just a nice thing to do and it makes the internet a better place for people who can't see images for whatever reason, you know. And I think the more people approach games with accessibility in mind, the more normalized it becomes and then the better tools that we have to do it. I mean, realistically, what the world needs is for the Paizos and the Hasbros and the White Wolves and the Onyx Paths of the world to say, all our PDFs are now screen reader accessible and we're releasing audio versions and all our images have alt text on them. But they're not going to, so it's up to us to do it. Yeah. I uh, I have that... Uh, when you said audio, too, I got goosebumps because I've been thinking about for a long time of, like, could I, could I like, make a job in for myself and, like doing audio reads of rule books you know yeah. what i mean like it's that's totally, totally a, a space that's like unexplored yeah. i feel like jack harrison did it for artifact um mm-hmm. i believe he's done it for orbital and maybe bucket of bolts as well although i'm not sure i intended to do it for the wretched and i still haven't found time to do it but at some point there will be an audiobook version of the wretched um that's obviously like that's more of an investment of time and potentially money um to do that i'll do it cool pay right. jeff stormer to make a let's play podcast and an audiobook <laughs> yeah game, yeah you know yeah it's i think uh i think i've forgotten what i was going to say i don't know no you're super good um no i think it, it, when so for anyone who may not know me and spencer campbell have grown to like this live design ecosystem like t- taking Concepts from Roll20 and Astral Tabletop and the Roll application, which is a terrible Google searching tool uh, name. And uh, we look at D&D Beyond and how they have very like modular purchase in their digital design for the Wizards of the Coast book, which is technically also an accessibility thing because you don't have to outright spend 30 bucks on a book if you're just like, I just want to play the Arcane Archer for my fighter, I'm going to spend the two bucks and be done with it. Like I don't have to think about anything else. So that's also like that concept of being able to break up payments for something that you love is also an accessibility thing as well. Cause not everyone has 60 bucks to drop on a yeah. book. Community um, copies as well. Should have mentioned them. Yeah. 
Yep. Yeah. Yep. Sorry. I've cut Absolutely. you off. Go ahead. No, no. I, I'm glad you brought it up. I always forget about it because, um, again, I'm still new to itch. In fact, there'll be an announcement about a bundle thing soon. Anyways, uh, <laughs> so shameless self-plug, but. It's your podcast. Um, plug away. There, but it's, this is your moment, Chris. This is your moment. This <laughs> is the pinnacle that. of podcast, remember? This is the pinnacle of my career right now. In fact, I'm, I'm taking this moment to announce my retirement for podcasting. <laughs> full that's circle bullshit. that's absolute um, bullshit you can't shut me up i i will not i want more i want more from you uh but no i i think in terms of accessibility and why i i love learning about it more and more every day is i think about e-reader i think about like pub files and and moby files and everything like that i think about website uh, i used to dabble in website design web design uh, and application stuff and just thinking about like colors and uh, color blindness and how video games are getting better and better at that. Not great, but getting better and better at with every year of iteration on its design. And I think about like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if there was like, I don't know how expensive that would be for the artist, but what if there was like an a version of the art for colorblind people? Like how amazing would that be? You know what I mean? Like, that it, you wouldn't see just a smear of the same color, but you could really start to get that contrast in there for them. And that that's great in a digital space. Really uh, can't really be done on, I mean, it can be if you made an entire print series of the same book in that colorblindness spectrum, but that's expensive. I think, uh, Tyler Crumrine's been doing that. Yeah. I'm sure he's been like his artist and himself in the designs of the new, um, is it Different Worlds? Is that what it's Possible called? Worlds. Possible Worlds. I'm sure that one of the big things when they were designing their logo and everything was um, yes. colorblindness, like awareness, I guess. I don't know what the right term is, but like making sure all the artwork was accessible for people with colorblindness. I'm sure that's something Tyler's been doing. Yeah, I and I love that. I think it's important. I think that there's so many experiences out there in the world and the human spectrum that like, <laughs> it's it's almost interesting. It's like the market has been untapped. And like, I know it, maybe someone's listening is like, why are you thinking in a business perspective? But like, if we want to make it as designers and hit a wider audience, like we can expand our niche to people who are not being serviced. Like yeah. there are people who can't read the book. There are people who can't see the art. There are people who, um, your print is too small and it can't be flexed for them, right? Like there are not content warnings and now someone is going to give you a bad review because their traumatic experience is in your book and you didn't warn them beforehand. Like there's a lot of things we can do that ultimately, like honestly in a digital space don't require a a ton of work. Uh, It's certainly its own obstacles. I don't, I don't want to say that it's easy, but like it's, possible it's doable we have the technology and there's really no reason that you shouldn't be thinking about it when you're making your games yeah the other caveat um which we mentioned on the the panel with yubi is that Mm -hmm. like accessibility itself isn't accessible at the moment like the specialist tools and things are expensive a lot of us a lot of creative people are both financially poor and time poor so like if you're listening (laughs) to this i'm certainly not saying like if you don't yeah do accessible versions you're a bad person because like you might you literally might not have the resources to do it whether that's time or money um but if you do have the resources you should try and make use of them and be more mindful of what you're doing and like i'm not perfect and i'm still learning to do this stuff um 
but it's it's I found it really rewarding and really valuable to start thinking being more being more mindful about the way I design things. I keep trying to design dexterity-based games and keep having to say to myself, wait, not everyone can play Jenga, Chris. Come on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, it's just one of those things that you should just think about a little bit. Thinking yeah. about it a little bit is better than thinking about it not at all. Yes, yeah, I totally agree. Thank you for, because, uh, you know, I'm already all fired up from this whole episode. <laughs> I can I can get sort of on a tirade about you know, what's good for what, but you know, I, you know, I don't have a game out yet. So who am I to say <laughs> anything about anything? You, you don't have to listen to press, me. Jeremy. Huh? You're a part of the games press. You're press. Games press? Yeah. Oh, well, uh, wow. I didn't think about it like that. Hold on. I'm having a real revelation <laughs> right, right now. You're an existential games crisis. Press, huh? <laughs> Holy Jesus. Uh, well with that, <laughs> Uh, Chris, I want to thank you for being on today's episode. I had a ton of fun. Uh, as once again, would you sort of plug yourself, uh, Dice Souls, anything else you want to put out in the world, any future yeah. projects, let people know where to find you. All these links that Chris is about to give us will be in the show notes down below. Yeah. Uh, so I am Chris Bissett from Manchester in the UK. You can find me on the internet shouting very loudly about various things. I'm on Twitter at Pangalactic, uh, P-A-N-G-A-L-A-C-T-I-C. You can find my website, lootheroom.io. We'll give you links to both the actual website and to my itch page. Um, Yeah, Dice Souls will will be out hopefully in April. Hopefully. And if you pre-ordered it, I'm sorry that it wasn't out in February or March, but it's, it's coming. It's coming. Um, and I just released a free game called A Dragon Game that is um, a shitpost gone out of control. Uh, if you want to play D&D but don't want to pay Hasbro and don't actually want to be playing D&D but want to pretend and you want it in 10 pages and you want it to be free, go and grab a, a dragon game. Yes. <laughs> it's not yes, like D&D at all. But it's, it's certainly a game. It's a game that you can put dragons in. <laughs> Uh, and as always i have been jeremy gage i have had a ton of fun listening to chris i hope that you learned a lot because i certainly did and we will see you next time say bye to the people chris bye people bye people all right that's a wrap Chris has such a warm, thoughtful energy, and I love hanging out and getting inside their mind. I think about TTRPG game soundtracks more and more every day. So thank you, Chris. All the games we talked about today, along with all the links to get in touch with Chris, will be down below in the show notes for your access. If you liked the show and found it helpful, send a tip my way by following the link tree in the show notes to my Kofi or Venmo profiles. Or, if you are unable to provide monetary support, You can provide support at no cost by sharing this with someone you thought of while listening to this episode and leaving a review. Both of these methods greatly impact the success of this show and lets me know that what I'm doing is beneficial to designers out there. If you want to be a part of the conversation or hang out with alumni from the show like Chris, you can join the DYD House Discord server. Thanks for listening, and I will catch you next time.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.